0: Welcome to FRT, the IAF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Ranier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. I'm here with Larissa DeLima and Michael Wagner. Larissa is Senior Fellow in the Oliver Wyman Forum and co leads the Future of Money Initiative. And Michael is Partner in the Banking Practice at Oliver Wyman. We're gonna be talking about looking forward into the coming year in 2024. In particular, the two of them have taken a, a great look at competition for big money in the coming year and some trends that I think our listeners will be very interested in understanding. I'd like to look in particular at major themes that the two of them see that will be particularly driven by technological innovation. So first off, welcome and great to have both of you here with us. Perhaps we'll get started then just with a bit of an outline or, or an overview but with how you approached some of these trends and, and visions. You start by kind of laying out four visions for the way in which technological And policy developments may transform the business of high value flows and the kind of potential paths that the market might take, various visions from there, as well as ways in which companies or other market participants might react to those scenarios. Could you lay out kind of what those visions were and, and talk us through a little bit of those scenarios as you look at 2024?
1: So a guiding motivation for this work is that the future is often much more of a blank slate than people imagine. There's this tendency to see the future as simply an extension of the present, and more specifically, the present as imagined from the corner of the world um, that you live in. When in reality, the world is much more dynamic, and we really believe that it's too early to say how the future of tokenization and digital money is going to play out. So what we do in this report is we present four different ways the future could evolve and how we might get there to really help people imagine this diversity of futures that are possible to go through them. The first one we imagine banks successfully evolving. So they would continue to be central to financial services, a similar market structure as exists today, but with modernized technology. That's not to say that it'd be the death of competition, but it would likely be between banks, between bank consortium. Next, our second paradigm imagines banks aren't able to adapt and win the race. And there's a proliferation of new networks and non-bank players are the ones that provide value across the networks and help connect the dots. We call these new players digital intermediaries as this connectivity is likely going to be heavily tech-driven and likely to come from digital natives that builds and gains scale and command market power, creating potentially new walled gardens. On the other hand, if you have technical interoperability and a degree of openness across these new networks, you may see a more revolutionary or transformative scenario. We call this one the rise of universal networks. The winning business model here are gonna be much more tech-based. It's gonna be peer to pool to peer, more protocol-driven intermediation, a lot more innovation, but potentially also more complexity, interconnectivity, and its own challenges. Finally, there's a scenario that imagines a greater role for the sovereign. Now, a lot of people see central bank digital currencies and imagine that every central bank wants to change the way that the public-private partnership works today, but we don't really see that in our conversations with central banks. However, it may still be that central bank money plays a much greater role, either because a there's, it'll be an unintended consequence of success and the success leads to a change in political demand, or it's also possible that a crisis uh, comes along and changes um, the dynamics that we see. So all in all, four different extreme scenarios. The future may be a combination of those four across markets and across geographies but what's most important is that people see that there's very different potential futures that are possible.
0: Uh, Thanks for uh, laying those out as kind of a a framework to get the conversation started. I guess I would dive um, more next into how you see um, digital money and tokenization having the potential to transform the business of high value flows. And in particular, I think you talk about replumbing of the financial system. Could you kind of lay this out for us?
2: I would say simply put money. Uh, we have to ask ourselves first, what is money, right? So money is essentially a, a private uh, a public uh, private sector partnership uh, where the private sector basically ensures the growth and distribution of money. And the public sector is focused on stability of value of money, right? So what we are really talking about is uh, how this works. And in reality, uh, uh the system that we have today is very complex but it's also very dynamic right because over the last uh 50 years what's really happened is um uh we've centralized um uh, transactions and and a value exchange right in central entities such like ccps which will which have made financial transactions more efficient uh, both from a risk and from a cost Uh, perspective, right? But it's also concentrated risks. And uh, post the financial crisis of uh, 2008-2009, supervisors really have concentrated flows more within those central entities, but also have become more aware of the risks in those central entities. And tokenization can really help to address some of these issues that really come from centralization to allow a bit more de- decentralization, faster transactions uh, that also may require less capital. right? So therefore, uh, given that the financial system in itself um, is there to facilitate these transactions, we think that these changes will lead to a change in actors and in a change in channels. And that's what we mean with uh, replumbing. I think on the evolution of finance, it's really um, the complexity is, re- is uh, that, that we see today is really almost a byproduct of the technology we are using, right? So we are using message-based systems, and uh, you know, and for centuries we've done that by actually transferring physical currencies or digital, <laughs> did, did, uh, 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 digital representations of those physical. Uh, currencies and we needed trusted intermediaries that facilitate uh, uh, this um, transfer, right? So that's why we have banks, that's why we have uh, exchanges and so forth, because they really are uh, facilitating this value transfer. Now, tokenization is the next step in that uh, evolution. It unifies the movement of value and information, right, in one a single piece of, uh, uh, of, of a transaction. So this unification really allows um, uh, us to replace some of the actors, not all of them, right, with uh, a trusted network. So we are moving from trusted intermediaries only to trusted networks, but it's important uh, that those networks can be trusted. Right. But also this network effect is the most challenging factor in the whole equation. Right. How do you create networks that are trusted and can therefore facilitate this next evolution in finance? And therefore, that's kind of why we've uh, formulated those four scenarios, because whilst it's clear that it can be done, how it would be done and how these networks would be formed is still a big question to us
0: fascinating. So as you see the, and, and think through that evolution of finance, historically we're really talking about going from a physical manifestation and, and transactions to electronic, kind of focus on, on transactions and activity, and, and now we're talking tokenized. So moving through those those steps as, as you lay out quite well actually in, in the discussion in the report. If we go back to banks for a minute and banks having kind of long dominated this space, but the potential that, that tokenization will accelerate things along some of the trends that, that you just laid out and, and discussed and how, how this might challenge bank business models. How do you see that? How, how have they challenged the, the business models more directly if you could connect those dots for us?
1: Yeah, to start things off, I think something that helps really build the intuition for how tokenization can be transformative is to think about tokenization, not as being revolutionary, but as being an accelerant of existing trends that have already impacted the banking sector in the last few decades. So to talk about three of those trends, the first is increased competition in the forms of money. So it's not a surprise to anyone who lives and breathes in the banking sector that there's been a lot of movement of flow from deposits to money market funds. But in some ways, it's been advantageous by technology in that money market funds are a store of value, but they can't really be used directly for payments, driven by a series of constraints, including operational constraints. But that can change. Second, there's this increased reliance on capital market intermediation and non-bank financial intermediation. So a lot of people place the centrality of banks on their role in this two-tier system and the relevance for credit creation. But the reality is that about half of global financial assets are provided by non-banks. And then finally, we see this trend of increasingly technology dominating over capital as a source of competitive advantage. We've seen new alternative trading systems, high frequency trading firms, gaining market share. And this is partly due to their ability to discover and process data. Um, it's not enough today to have capital. It's really about making use of technology to be efficient and nimble in optimizing capital and liquidity.
0: So the quick answer, just just having something is is not enough, never enough. It's it's how, how you use it, how you apply it, um, and and what can be done done with it to to be used used well. So I think all good points. So you also discuss that the impact and opportunity of tokenization will be significant. So beyond what we've laid out so far, how would you say significant explicitly in, in what way?
2: Yeah, no, I, I want to go back to the three uh, factors Larissa mentioned, right, and maybe exemplify this a little bit of where tokenization uh aids uh, the development. For example, uh, on the uh, competition for deposits or liability uh, instruments, it's really tokenization allows the movement of these money market funds and funds to use them for payments. It also even allows a tokenization of bonds, right? We could uh, tokenize treasuries to use them as payment instruments, right? So when we do do, uh, financial transactions, I could exchange a treasury for an equity, for example, to pay for it, right? If I can match the value which requires tokenization, right? Or fractionalization, which I can do through tokenization. So we think a whole wealth of financial transactions can be de-risked and uh, made possible through the new instrument of tokenization, which will increase competition for the formats of money, right? Be it digital money, be it tokenized treasuries, and that will need a rethink also from supervisors of uh, how this competition is going to play out because some of the effects could be uh, wanted, some of them could be unwanted. Then I think on the growing capital market intermediation, it's a trend that we've seen probably when we look longer, right? Uh, It's happened over the last 50 plus years, right? We've capital markets have grown um, uh, significantly and through tokenization, I think there's three main things that will aid the growth of capital markets. One is, as we said, by tokenizing liabilities. So money market funds, bank deposits and so forth. The other one is fractionalized assets or creating fractionalized assets will allow greater diversification. So for example, a portfolios that were simply too small to be diversified through tokenization can actually benefit from this uh, diversification effect on, uh, because they can uh, access instruments that they couldn't in, uh, access before. And the, the third factor here is uh, it will allow for the tokenization of real-world assets such as commodities or gold, right? So those uh, will be able to be tra- better traded and become more liquid, first and foremost, as we already see, as using them as collateral, right? So for example, today I can use metals or, or even oil as collateral, but it takes fi- uh, you know, three to five days to settle the transaction. And with tokenization, I can can do a similar uh, transaction within minutes, right? So that will increase liquidity uh, significantly. And then coming back to the last factor that uh, uh, Larissa mentioned, technology as a source of competitive um, advantage. I think the banks have been or any players in the financial system have been experiencing this over the the last decade or so, right, as an accelerated fact. But what's new here is that uh, a tokenization or the use of uh, blockchain will allow also the tokenization of data, right, which will make data more accessible. It gives actors also a bit more control over how data is used. But, for, uh, but lastly, it creates a clean and homogenous set of data, right, so that will allow the use of ai and other um, uh, mechanisms to accelerate transactions and to facil- facilitate transactions so if we look at for example the digital asset universe it was really one of the first um, users or heavy users of ai right in the last few years um, and that can uh, can develop uh, uh, simply by the fact uh, uh, that the data is homogeneous and clean so we see data as a key driver here as well of the next step of of, of evolution.
0: You know, Michael, I'm so glad that you that you brought up data and that you highlighted it here because that's something that we've been thinking a lot about as well, particularly with just the expansion and attention paid to um, the growth of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and really understanding that there's really no point in talking about uh, policy around AI and machine learning unless you're talking about the policy... Uh, with respect to the data that the AI is actually using to come to the outcomes that it's, you know, con- concluding and the data that um, models are trained on and-, and things like that, all of that plays into account. And-, and we kind of have, you know, pools of of different kinds of data in different places around the world. A patchwork of data policy is uh, between you know, different jurisdictions and even within a jurisdiction that have never really been looked at to, to try to put them all together to understand what would that impact be, nor is that just an exercise one could do overnight because they're extensive and, and detailed and global, um, or, or I'd say globally fractured in many different ways. And so I, I'm just glad that, that you raised that um, because I think in 2024, that is you know a a real issue that we're going to have to come to grips with almost as you know we're going to sort of maybe reap what we've sown in terms of our all of our you know different data policies everywhere and see how that plays out
2: yeah and i think that's also because data today lives in silos right As, as as we said we exchange information through messages and then it goes back into each silos. And these networks that DLT-based infrastructures allow actually force, uh, you know, force participants to uh, use the same format, right? So these data format differences that exist today, which are major barriers to kind of some of these developments, uh, can change, right, with this new technology. But obviously, as you said, it's very important to make sure that the data that you use is authorized for the right purposes, that the right people have access to it. But I think uh, that is something. That's why I said institutions that participate in these new network economies, uh, economies, and there is a huge benefit of doing so, also need to be really clear about what data do they want to share, what data do they own, where's their advantages, because without a clear vision of this, I think this could easily turn sour for uh, you know participants that entered too early and too rosy-eyed into this.
0: So you also end at the, um, or draw the conclusion, should I say, that it's too early to tell how this competition between new and old monies uh, will play out. So when we think about it being too early to tell, and, and I, I would agree with you. Um, I always like to think about what, you know, what are indicators, kind of um, uh, indications that we might look for, or or signs or milestones that we might be able to say, hey, when I see this, um, then I think I'll I'll have a better idea of where this is going. Um, what are those indicators that you're keeping an eye out for? Um, what are you waiting to see happen first before you feel like you have a better view on on how it will play out?
2: So I think kind of what we're really looking for is uh, things becoming real, right? So I think what is happening now is some of the experiments that earlier were proofs of concepts are now moving to real money, right? And we're seeing uh, a range of those uh, 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 developing, right? So pilots are becoming increasingly sophisticated. So some of the central bank experiments are no longer just mere POCs. They're actually aimed uh, you know, to create real uh, money uh, transfer systems or value transfer systems, right? So I think Switzerland is a good example. Uh, we've seen uh, the, the launch of public bonds now, A uh, CBDC uh, was launched at the same time. Um, so here we, we, we are seeing real applications and real um, uh, 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 mechanisms that uh, uh, it, market participants can access. Right. I think the second one is consortia are taking off. So there is a whole range of consortia that are looking to create um, liabilities, right? So um, we've seen at least five significant players emerge over the last uh, last years, right? So the, uh, uh, that they are bank consortia or sometimes bank and asset management consortia that are trying to create a liability that can be exchanged between them and use as a payment mechanism then there is uh, the application in the field of collateral securities lending and repo so uh, you know th- th- there's been uh, very significant launches uh, uh, in, in 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 the last 2 years um, uh, in 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 the field of for example uh, daylight repo right which allow Um, uh, 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 banks or any market participants to optimize their balance sheet during the day and to be as efficient as they can uh, in it. The same in collateral. We've seen some entities being launched that allow you to reuse your collateral much faster than you could before. So all of these are already creating real impact and and, and real benefits for the participants. And I think that is the first thing that needs to happen uh, before Uh, this technology takes off. But I think uh, those cases, I think, are providing significant benefits to their participants, and that is really what we're looking for, is the the broadening of those benefits and the broadening of the participants, but also new use cases, right? So I think the next interesting step will be uh, in Europe. So MICA, for example, will um, uh, come up with a stablecoin regulation by the middle of next year. Right. And that will basically allow the uh, uh, participants to issue stable coins, which will be very interesting, right? Who will be issuing stable coins? What will they be used for? So I think uh, the next year will show up a lot more new, interesting examples uh, of where the technology is now mature enough to be used.
1: What Michael is saying are actually a lot of examples that are already in play today or imminent. Um, And what we know about the digital worlds is that it's characterized by a rapid ability to scale. So people may look at these examples and think like, oh, they're all very small today. Um, They're in the order of maybe a couple billion, but the potential for the market is to reach the order of magnitude in the trillions by end of the decade. Although estimates may vary, they're all in that order, about that order of magnitude. And what this means is that existing markets will substantively be impacted. We'll see some intermediaries becoming redundant and ceasing to exist, um, costs decreasing and being passed on to clients. But what is really most exciting, and especially when our, our interviews, what people have called out is the possibility of entirely new markets and new business models. Um, so that would be another family of, of early indicators to be looking at what is novel. Because in our conversations with bank, there's this real risk of, falling into an innovator's dilemma type of issue. As tokenization lowers the cost to serve, you're all of a sudden able to serve new customers that may not be part of the financial system today or new types of products that don't exist today. But the reality is that those success cases can then build the ability um, to harness the technology and eventually grow to serve core markets. So let's broaden out
0: and look forward to uh, 2024, um, not specifically focused on on the, the four visions or trends that you've laid out, but using them as context to kind of walk into. Of course, we have um, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting coming up in Davos very, very soon. But I don't know, how do you see any of these kinds of scenarios or topics potentially playing out in, in the themes of the upcoming annual meeting, the discussions that we might expect there, um, and, and things to kind of come out of this month, because since this meeting is always kind of the kickoff of, of, a, of a year and a lot of things that, that may, may come down the pike.
1: Yeah, so Davos this year is focused on rebuilding trust and trust is really at the heart of money and the financial sector. And we started this discussion talking about how the technology can potentially replace trust in intermediaries. If the potential lies in these networks connecting markets globally, it really touches on one of the other core themes of Davos is how do you achieve cooperation in a fractured world? So the value is in the potential global reach, but it really depends on cooperation. And that cooperation has to be between public and private sector and also ideally across regions in the world and across jurisdictions. Now, we do see some proposals coming up around global cooperation uh, for these new networks. We've seen the BIS talk about a global unified ledger. The MAS recently announced its plans to explore a global layer one. Um, So we're really on the lookout to see what are the next steps and what are concrete actions and commitments that are taken to really improve cooperation um, and building these global new networks.
0: So beyond the upcoming themes of of course that will be discussed in, in that meeting and, and the theme um, that so so clearly harkens um, trust, um, and and rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about the the coming year, is there anything else that um, folks in in financial markets, um, institutions, as they deal with these and approach these kinds of scenarios and issues, um, and and. Even geopolitics. Uh, we have a lot of elections coming up around around the world um, and particularly uh, focused in certain jurisdictions more than others. Um, anything else that you might uh, call to folks attention just as they nap- navigate you know, these these trends coming forward?
2: Yeah, no, I think uh, we are uh, entering a really exciting point from a policy perspective. So policies have been in the works in many jurisdictions for quite a while, right? And in 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 some, they are now becoming mature, right? So we mentioned the MiCA framework, uh, but you know it, it, that's just one example, right? So I think uh, people should be looking out as these policies are being released or becoming mature. Really, what is the impact? What does it mean? for a competition, for the ability to participate uh, and and so forth. Um, we mentioned the stablecoin rule, right? That that will be a real uh, example, right? So here, people already should be having a view, right? They should already have pro- projects in the pipeline to participate, to be ready, right? So we've seen some announcements, but there have been very few, right? Um, but it, it, it is interesting. Uh, uh that that it will be a real test uh in in terms of the um uh policies becoming real. and then we've seen probably four jurisdictions you know we want to highlight four uh, that uh, that really are becoming more mature right switzerland we talked about singapore has done a, a lot of experiments uh hong kong and brazil they now already all have cbdc and uh, uh uh experiments that are becoming mature and and will be launched or actually in some cases have been launched so that will be very interesting uh and important even if you're not active in those jurisdictions to see what the implications are and to see how the market participants are reacting and positioning but, and as you mentioned elections. some jurisdictions won't see clarity so here i think the u.s presidential election will have uh, an impact, and I don't think anybody will be much focused on clarity in digital assets uh, in, in the United States over, over, the, over the coming uh, year, but hopefully uh, that, that will follow soon.
0: Well, there will certainly be plenty on, on lots of people's minds here in the U.S. and in other jurisdictions, um, as, as many elections take place all over the world. I and mean, we'll look for how kind of the geopolitical implications uh, of that uh, end up applying to the financial technology progress uh, that gets made around legislation and other rulemakings and, and things like that, all, all a host of consequences. So with that, we'll, we'll wrap up today. Thank you very much, uh, Larissa and Michael, for being with us today on, on the FRT podcast and for sharing your views on how things are shaping up for 2024 and result in competition for big money. I recommend everybody uh, go take a look at the report from the end, the end of last year, 2023, titled Inside the Competition for Big Money. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IAF website as well at IF.com And we will be uh, coming back to wrap up with more kind of takeaways from, from Davos in, in the coming weeks and share them with you there.